Church family, uh, today we're continuing on in a study in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 today, and I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, but maybe you got a handout on the way in, the, we've got the text printed out there. And for those of y'all joining us online, uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, readily available, just go open up a new browser, go to Bible.com, and again, we'll be in Exodus chapter 5 today. Uh, today, I'm going to do the, kind of the, this next part. Uh, we're going to explore Exodus 5 for a little bit together, and then uh, I'm going to bring up my friend uh, Abby Kikito, who's going to share a little bit about her experience and even what she's seeing in this text and how it's lived out uh, in her in and through the ministry she's a part of in Uganda. So I'm excited uh, for that today. So uh, grab Bibles, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, if you've never read uh, Bible before, that's totally fine. Um, I want to invite you to follow along, and I just want to tell you guys up front, uh, as you're reading along through Exodus, there's a ton of weird stuff, and that's okay. We're just going to let it be. Uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, firm convictions uh, as a church family, one of our core values is we, we aren't here to answer all the questions. Our role as leadership uh, is to equip you to discern your own convictions by the power of the Holy Spirit. And part of discerning your own convictions is uh, engaging in texts like Exodus 6, uh, wrestling through it on your own, but more importantly, uh, talking about it with your church family. So um, be- better, and, and here's the deal. <clears throat> Can I let you guys on a little insider secret? Okay, now I'm a preacher. I love preaching. Uh, and one of the reasons I love preaching is because it's monologue, right? Like, like I could just give you my ideas and then you're stuck there receiving it, right? And I love that, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. But and now I'm going to tell you this, and I'm afraid that this is going to undermine uh, my own, uh, what I just said. Uh, the best way to engage in Scripture is actually not through just listening to a 30-minute monologue, but it's actually wrestling around with the text with your church family for the next 100 years. Okay? And, and, and like, like, here's the arguing about it. Uh, and wrestling through it, trying to figure out what do you see? I, I don't see it the same way you do. Let's figure that out together. So, so that's your homework is we're going to kind of do a little introduction to Exodus 5 today and there's going to be a lot of weird stuff and then I want to encourage you to maybe take some people from your church family out to lunch or to dinner or to coffee sometime and just say, hey, what did you think about what we heard and what we read through Exodus 5? And, and to help you in that, uh, we've got these bookmarks with just some Bible study questions. So if you've, if you've never done Bible study uh, t- together with other people, that's, that's awesome. In fact, I love studying the Bible with people who have never done it before because it means you haven't been spoiled yet with bad interpretation uh, models, right? Yeah? Okay, I'm looking at some of you and you're like, is he talking about me? Yes, I am. So, <coughs> so the, uh, the uh, 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 bookmarks are available on the tables in the back and also out in the lobby. And they've just got some questions there for you. Please feel free to take those uh, and use those. I keep mine right here in my Bible. And lo and behold, it's in Exodus 5, which is where we're at today. That was the best segue I've done all month. I've got to tell you guys. Okay, so let's. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, just for a little bit, uh, we're going to read uh, portions of Exodus 5, and I just want to invite you in and maybe notice some things. And then I'm going to bring up Abby, and she's going to share some of her perspective as well. So uh, this is Exodus 5. Now, up until this point in time, uh, we've seen that Moses, uh, that the, excuse me, in Exodus 1, that the people of God, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, that they're uh, enslaved in Egypt. And so uh, they're, they're crying out uh, to their God, uh, whose name, what's interesting is they don't really even know uh, God's name. They're just kind of crying out to some sort of like ambiguous God, it seems. And then uh, it, what the text says is that God hears their cry. That the cries go up to God, and then what's interesting is God comes down. And God says to Moses uh, that he's going to deliver the people. He heard the cries, and he's going to deliver the people. And Moses is like, cool. And then a surprise happens. God says to Moses, 
you're going to go. And Moses is like, what? Right? And so God calls Moses to go. And Moses is like, they're not going to believe me. I'm not equipped for this job. How am I going to go? And so you see God working on Moses to work through Moses and, and also Aaron. Uh, he's going to work through Moses and Aaron to redeem his people. So, so by the time we get to five, chapter 5, Moses has been wrestling with God around his calling. God placed a calling in Moses' life. He wants to use Moses to meet this need. God's going to do the work of redemption through this human actor, Moses. And Moses fights with him a bunch, argues with him, and eventually Moses is like, all right, I'm going to do this. And then we get Moses going to, um, going, he's now going to go with, his, with Aaron to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Watch this. You guys ready? I know that you're all on the edge of your seats waiting to see what happens next. Okay, so here we go. It says in in chapter 5, verse 1, Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. TV time out. Notice that they refer to the the Lord God. uh, Does your translation say the Lord? Lord, Okay, so maybe in the original it it was, um, actually if you had the the Hebrew, it would just say Yahweh, which is the name of God. uh, I am or I am doing in your midst or I am always doing or always among you. That's that. We talked about that last week. Uh, Check that out on our website if you want to. So it's the proper name. But here's the deal. Pharaoh likely does not call this people group Israel. So far they've been referred to as the Hebrew people. And he doesn't know who this God is, right? And Pharaoh knows a bunch of gods. He ain't never heard of this God. So notice what Moses does. He kind of has a little blunder here. Now watch this. This is crazy. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my... Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Is that what God said to say? Now, what's interesting, if you go back, just rewind the tape, you go back, God actually didn't say this. At least, at least not verbatim. So notice Moses and Aaron, they parade into Pharaoh's office, and they're like, you know, they stomp their feet and they say, this is what the God of Israel says, Yahweh says, let my People go, ah, very strong, right? There, there's no courtesy here. There's no actually humility here. They go in and they make demands, which is actually different than what God, what Yahweh told them to do. What Yahweh told Moses to do was say, go to Pharaoh. You can guys go look it up. It's just in the previous text. He says, go to Pharaoh and say, please, would you allow the people to go into the, to, to go? And take a three-journey into the wilderness. See, what God tells Moses to do, Moses seems to, maybe, maybe he's, he's drunk on his own uh, power in this moment. He's feeling real sure of himself. And he goes in there and he makes a demand. That's different than how God actually told him to approach Pharaoh. Now, notice what Pharaoh does next. Oh, just a quick, up, just, just for me at least, just because God's called me to do something doesn't give me the right to use my own methods and means to pursue that calling. All right, someone's like, ouch, yep, ouch, right? The ends do not justify the means. Okay, let's keep going. But Pharaoh, verse 2, but Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord or Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I ain't letting nobody go, right? And why ain't he letting them go? Because they're making him a ton of money. It would be absolutely in Pharaoh's economic uh, worst interest, 
to let these people go because they're, they're an economic machine, right? He has put them under slavery, and they're producing. I mean, they are highly productive people, and they're producing a great deal of wealth for Pharaoh. So, of course, why would he let them go? Like, that's, like if you're a Pharaoh, would you let them go? You would? Well, they would write a book after you, bro. I love that. Do you have a bank account? You do? Okay. <laughs> for the rest of us who have to manage our bank accounts, would you let the people go? Like, no, this is an economic engine for him. Of course, of course he's not going to let him go. Okay, let's keep going. Dude, I love your heart, though. I love that. They answered, the God of the Hebrews. Now, notice they changed their posture. Notice they, they, they changed it up a little bit. Uh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip. Okay, now we're lowering the bar. Into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or Yahweh our God, or else he may strike us with plagues or sword. That's interesting. So, so he now says, um, you know, you, Pharaoh, you, Pharaoh, have to let us go or God's going to kill us, thus depleting your revenue-generating machine. Do you see it? Okay, this is really interesting. Okay, this, this, this is something maybe we should, uh, should kind of wrestle with this for the next uh, few decades. Okay, so uh, verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to, notice what he says, get to, what is he saying to Moses and Aaron? You lazy bums, you get back to work. Hmm? Notice where Pharaoh postures himself as their uh, boss, right, their owner. Let's check this out. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you, would, and you would stop them from their labor? I mean, he's incredulous. He's like, I can't believe you're asking me to do this. Verse 6, that day Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen, do not continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks for them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. They're listening to Aaron and Moses. And Pharaoh's answer is, put them under harsher labor. These people are starting to get nasty with me. They're starting to talk back to me. They're starting to question me, Pharaoh. So what does Pharaoh do? He increases their labor. He puts pressure onto them, right? Do you see it here? And isn't this like standard despot playbook? Like this is how dictators work, right? I mean, this ain't nothing strange, is it? This is one of the most common things in the world, right? So verse 10, so the overseers and the foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, I'm not giving you straw, which was, uh, um, uh, it would be, maybe it would be the equivalent of like, hey, you guys are building a bunch of concrete buildings. I'm no longer going to give you the ready-made concrete. You're going to have to go make the concrete yourself. So it's, this is a building supply situation, but it's not a supply chain problem. Pharaoh's intentionally making their work harder. Go get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So he increases the pain by expecting the same production, but decreasing the resources that he gives to these people. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when the straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh, uh, who Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten. And they asked, 
Why haven't you finished, the owners, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? Why didn't they finish their work? They didn't have a straw, right? He doubled their workload. Do you see this is a setup? Like Pharaoh's setting them up to fail here as kind of like a punishment for the audacity of Moses and Aaron coming saying, let us go worship for three days in the wilderness. Do you see it? So do you see here that Pharaoh is in direct conflict with Yahweh? Right? Pharaoh is posturing himself. Notice what Yahweh says. Yahweh says, I want the people to go. And Pharaoh says, in direct contradiction, no, no, no. I want these people to stay. God, Yahweh says, I want these people to be let free so that they can worship me. And Pharaoh says, no, no, no. I'm going to hold them captive so they can serve me. You see the conflict here? It's Pharaoh and Yahweh. Okay, let's keep going. So the Israelite foreman, uh, verse 15, uh, went in and cried for help to, okay, notice this. What did they do? What's the text say? Verse 15, the Israelite foreman went in and where are they crying? To whom? Who are they not crying out to? You see, earlier in the text, we see that they cried out to God and God heard them, right? The cries went up and God came down. He heard their cries and then he was going to, he enacted a redemptive work, but they ain't got no patience for that. They got no patience for Yahweh. They're not going to wait for Yahweh, so where do they go cry to? Pharaoh, do you see? There's two places we can send our cries. There's two places we can look to for our help. There's the powers of this world, and then there's the power of God. Do you see it? And here they are. They're, they're crying out to who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. They can see it, right? They see this as a setup. But he, Pharaoh, said, you are slackers. Slackers, I say. That is why you are asking, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. Do you see that keep coming up? I mean, this, this pain is predominant in their life. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted whom? They did not go out and cry to God. Where did they go? They went to Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. Okay, watch this. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So here God places a calling in Moses' life. Moses kind of drops the ball a little bit, but he's also trying to be faithful to God's calling, right? He, he starts to use his own means, but then he corrects and he uses the means that Yahweh told him. But then this uh, the king of this world, Pharaoh, actually responds negatively to God's redemptive work in the moment. And so Moses meets resistance. And the Israelite people whose cries had gone up and who, to whom and for whom God had come down, are, they're tired of waiting. And they feel like the world is collapsing underneath them. And they wonder, is God hearing our cries? So much so, there's so much confusion in their life that they actually accuse the person that God called, they accuse Moses and Aaron, the one whom God called to do this redemptive work, they accuse them of putting swords in Pharaoh's hands to slay them. They are calling good evil. So sometimes when we answer God's call in our life, we get resistance even from the people we're trying to help. This ever happened to y'all? Like, 
in good faith, you're trying to minister to or serve somebody, and they actually respond negatively? Ever happen to you all? Yeah. So other people's response to living out our calling is not a justification or a negation of our calling. It's just their response to our living and to our calling in the moment. Okay, here we go. So Moses goes back to where? Verse 22. Moses went back to, okay, so he's getting resistance from Pharaoh, and he's getting resistance from who else? The people. So who, who do you turn to then? All right, well. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused notice? The blame is being shot in all different directions here, ain't it? Uh, This is the sin of Adam. Remember uh, when Adam gets uh, busted for eating the fruit in the garden and he's like, it's this woman you put with me. He blames the woman and he blames who? uh, Moses is just doing what he learned from his father Adam, right? Moses goes back to the Lord, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? Notice whose people? Not Moses' people. He ain't ready to associate with these people. Why did you ever send me? You guys ever felt like that before? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. How many of y'all pray like this? God, you're not owning up to what you said you were going to do, Broseph. You're, you're causing more problems here, God. You see that Moses has no problem arguing with God. Right? He's in his calling. He's meeting resistance. He goes back to God and says, why have you put me here? What are you even doing here? You said you were going to deliver, but I ain't seen deliverance yet. Some of us know what that feels like. And this is where chapter breaks kind of suck. Like, I, I don't like this chapter break. You, like, right here, the chapter breaks. And by the way, chapter breaks were added in by some dude like a thousand years ago. They're not, they're not divinely inspired. So don't worry about the chapter break. Check this out. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of a strong hand he will let them go and because of a strong hand he will drive them from his land. Whose hand is he talking about? Moses' hand? No. Aaron's hand? No. Whose? It's the hand of the Lord. Notice that Pharaoh uses his hand to do what? Enslave. And Yahweh is using his hand to do what? If you'll pardon me, to disarm the destroyer. Hmm? And so even though the Israelites, even though Moses, even like no one in this text sees God working. And yet what, what is God doing? He's at work, right? Even though there's this song we say, even though we can't see it, you're working. You're working here. And so God is about, and this sets the stage. This, um, check this out, in in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see. This is a pivot point in the book of Exodus. From this moment on, you see God working, and boy, does he work. Whoo! He's going to work with a mighty hand, and you're going to see it in, like, full, vivid effect. But I just wanted to pause here in this text. Let's not get just too quickly to the rest of the story. Because for many of us, we sit in a space, don't we? where we feel like we're stepping into God's calling, we feel like we're doing what God has called us to do, or we're following God in difficult circumstances, but it just does, we're getting so much resistance, it just doesn't feel like God's at work. And so we're going to just pause there in the text. 
And I'm going to invite Abby Kikito to come up. I think that her perspective on this actually is going to be really helpful for us. Um, one of the things that we believe here at Desert Springs is we believe that God is constantly at work, not only in our church family, but in every church family here in Phoenix and around the world. And so we love partnering with other organizations and churches. Hey, what's up? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we love partnering with other churches and organizations uh, like Abby uh, and uh, her husband David with A Perfect Injustice in Uganda. Uh, because not just, and it's not, a, listen, it's not a matter of charity for us as a church. It's a matter of equity and reciprocity, that there's gifts that we're giving to each other within the global church. And one of the many gifts that we get to receive from the church in Uganda is uh, the perspective that Abby is going to share with us today. And so welcome. Thank you. Tell us about, like, um, you, you, hi, and uh, A Perfect Injustice, sure. the ministry you do. Uh, my name's Abby. My husband, uh, we've been married for 11 years. We work together in Uganda. He's Ugandan. Unfortunately, he couldn't get his visa to come this year uh, due to COVID, but you would have loved seeing him again. He's a very um, handsome, godly, <laughs> courageous man. Um, so we work together in the village in western Uganda in a district called Chiwale. We work with um, impoverished families. Um, it's very uh, rural. There's no roads or electricity or stores or anything. Uh, we're working with uh, 4,000 adults, around 6,000 kids, um, teaching and showing them about the love of Christ. I mean, obviously, that's the most important thing because only Jesus can save. He um, is the only place that people can find true hope um, and transformation. Uh, but we also um, are trying to holistically love people and to care for their physical and psychological needs as well. So talk a little bit about um, the area a little bit more. You mentioned it's rural, mm -hmm. uh, but you actually started in Kampala, which yep. is kind of like a metropolitan space, and there's yep. like sky rises and slums right there <laughs> yes. together. It's a big city. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how this is different than maybe Kampala and how you kind of got there. Um, I moved to Uganda 15 years ago, and I began uh, by working in the slums with street children. I also worked with uh, prostituted women, young women, and um, we provided emergency care, medicine, food, counseling, um, had Bible studies with these kids, and helped to resettle them off the streets and back with their biological uh, families where we continue to support them. We also had a children's home uh, where we provided for um, them as well until we were finally able to resettle them with their family or a foster family. And after about 10 years of providing emergency care for these kids, we, you know, it was a very developed area. It's the capital city of Kampala. We saw a lot of nonprofits come in and start working with this same group of kids. And we felt like God was calling us to move out of the capital city and to move to an extremely impoverished rural area so that we could work with many families, support them, empower them, and to prevent kids from falling through the cracks and running to the streets in the first place. So uh, you've made the shift from Kampala, now I believe four years ago, to uh, this rural area. Uh, but how'd you get there in the first place? You're from Phoenix, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Uh, how'd you go from Phoenix to Uganda? Um, so growing up, I went on a lot of mission trips um, uh, with different setting organizations, and I... When I finished high school, I felt just really anxious to get on with my life, and I told God that I was going to seek him every day, that I wanted to know what he wanted me to do 
for the rest of my life. And if you told me, I would try my best to be obedient and to do it. And so I uh, began seeking him, uh, seeking godly uh, counsel, reading my Bible, praying, just seeking him. And it was a very short period of time. And um, I knew he was calling me to be a full-time missionary in Africa. And um, I had gone to Africa when I was 14. I went to Mozambique and had not enjoyed the experience and told God I never wanted to go back there. So that was surprising. Never tell God no, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> 14, yes. first time to Africa, yes. not great experience, nope. and you're like, never again. No, nope. I'll never again. Three years later, <laughs> yes. right, you're praying, yep. and the Lord's like, guess what? Africa. Africa. <laughs> and I was, I was wrestling with that, like, yeah. really? really? Forever? Remember I said forever. This is what I have to do forever. Um, and so I was wrestling with that, and... Um, I was sitting in church, and the pastor was sharing and saying how, you know, there's, there's a period of time where you're just discerning God's will, and you really are not quite sure, uh, but then there comes a point when you know, and you're choosing not to accept it, and um, there comes a point when that's disobedience, and the Holy Spirit really convicted me, and I went up to the pastor and told him, yeah, I think God's calling me to be a full-time missionary in Africa, and he's like, that's great, go tell your parents, so... <laughs> So um, I was 17. I graduated high school early because I wanted to get on with my life. Um, and so I went home, sat my parents down. I remember I was crying. I was very emotional, not even sure why. And I was, I was telling them, these are not tears of joy, of sadness, but of joy. I am called to be a full-time missionary in Africa. And it was overwhelming for them. Um, but I'm really grateful that they embraced that. They encouraged me um, and um, helped support me on that journey. So 14, first time to Africa, never want to do this again. <laughs> Three years later, go back to Africa. You yep. talk to your parents. They're mm -hmm. praying through this with you. And then you, you, when did you make the move? So I went, I moved, to, I went to Uganda as a study abroad program as a junior then came back, finished college early too, took my exams early, and I moved to Uganda. Cool. And uh, you met your husband there, is that correct? Yes. Um, I had been serving there two years, and we were serving together, street kids in the slums, and um, he immediately caught my eye, but I didn't want to like show him that, so he thought I hated him for one full year. For a year? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then? He got up the courage to ask me out, but I was so overwhelmed yeah. and surprised that he's like, I really like you. Can we go out? I walked away. I, <laughs> I know, poor man. Um, but Ugandan men are, are very, um, they, they, they can overcome that. He asked me out two days later again, and I had a better answer that time. <laughs> so you guys served together. And how, um, how been in, uh, where you're at now in Chivalent for four years. Yeah. How have you seen God working? I know that it's a difficult space to be in. There's a lot of need, both physically and spiritually. So talk a little bit about how you've seen God. Oh, so that's that's our land right there in that valley. You can see it. So that's a pastor's training. Um, oh, man. So one thing I can say is that God has been so good to me. I mean, I 14, I went to Africa and then called to missions to be a missionary there. And then in those years, when I said yes to God and moved to Africa, literally coming to Uganda for the first time was like coming home. God gave me so much peace, so much excitement, so much joy and love for the people. 
and the ministry there, and that has never changed. And um, the same, I mean, I feel like that's, it's a pattern in my life, um, is that when I say yes to God, he equips. And when we felt that God was calling us to move to the village, it was kind of, it was very overwhelming because it was used to Kampala where, you know, there's electricity, um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So yeah, running water, warm water. Um, and so it was kind of, I wasn't really excited about it, but God made it really clear that's what he wanted us to do. And um, he made it clear. We, we said, okay, if we're going to do it, let's, you know, let's really do it. So God, please take us to a place that has extreme physical needs. There's a lot of poverty and a lot of spiritual needs that there's spiritual darkness where you want us to go and shine your light. And um, those were our, our two prayers. And God knew exactly what he was doing when he called us. We we're in a village called Indama. When he called us to Indama, um, there is so much physical poverty there. And we have so seen... Um, God knew what he was doing. Um, that area is very impoverished, but our specific community, because of its location, it's on a district line, it's behind a really big river, it doesn't have access to government services. It is a huge migrant community, so people that were not doing well in their homes are moving around trying to find a better life. Um, and so there is a lot of physical need. And so um, it has been exciting to be able to go and um, to give people... Um, just encouragement and to help give them, you know, medical care when they're really sick and to help them and to say, you know, we're here because Jesus sent us and he loves you so much. And um, just to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus there has been really exciting. And to see how um, a lack of material things gives people such an open heart to Christ um, because they realize they need him, that they are not enough and um, that they need a savior. And I think an example I think of is if I get sick or I get a headache or any of us, we take medicine, right? And then if the medicine doesn't work and we get sicker, we'll go to the doctor. And then it, the doctor will probably give us medicine and then we take it. And then if that fails, then we start praying, oh God, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? Um, my first response, I'll be honest, if I have a headache is to take Tylenol. Um, but for people in our community, when their child gets sick or they get sick, they don't have money to go to the, the hospital. Immediately they have to pray. And so it gives them a reliance on, on God. Um, the challenge is sometimes they don't know Jesus, um, but we've seen that there. When we came out there, we had also, our number one prayer was, God, send us to a place that needs you. And unbeknownst to us at the time, that area is known um, for being a place of spiritual darkness and a stronghold for witchcraft. And uh, God gave David a couple different dreams before going out there, but one was really specific. Right before we moved, he gave David a dream that he was going to give us land, and on that land, David was going to unearth um, a shrine and a place that had been used for sacrifices for witchcraft. And um, in the dream, he was uncovering these dead animals that had been used, and God told him, this is what you're going to find. I want you to remove it, destroy it, and declare that place for me. And it was kind of a creepy dream. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and um, so then we moved out there. And we were at first we were renting in the area because we hadn't built our house yet. And just a couple of weeks after being there, I remember I got a call from David and totally nonchalant. Hey, babe, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be home a little bit late. Something came up. I don't know when I'm coming home, but I got to finish this thing. Like, okay. 
um, found out later that he had discovered this shrine on our land. It was about a quarter acre and very grassy with rocks and things like that. And he wanted to slash it, burn it, crush it, destroy it. Um, and so he and another of our really amazing godly social workers, Stephen Coteau, um, set about doing that. And so the whole, so this place was known like throughout our region. People would travel here for witchcraft. It was a really um, powerful witch doctor that used it. And so the whole community knew it couldn't be destroyed. And if anyone tried, that they would drop dead. So like the whole community was just like watching and waiting. They didn't really know them, expecting them to just keel over. Um, so the whole thing is gathered around <laughs> to watch. Husband, David, and yes. your friend. Yep. As they're destroying this. Yes. This yeah. Statue. Yeah, and expecting and it not to work. Expecting dead. Yeah, that they'll just fall over dead. And? and they didn't. Guess what? It did burn. It was destroyed. And as they were destroying it, they also uncovered there were some hidden wires and um, like tunnels that um, people. So people come and they worship the rocks. There's some water that comes out of it. And so the witch doctor was using that, but he was deceiving people to make them think they were hearing spirits and the rocks when really there was like a sound system. So that was exposed to the whole community. So it was a really powerful testimony coming in that um, these witch doctors are deceiving you and they don't have more power than Jesus, that this place didn't kill David and Stephen, that they're alive and kicking. Um, and that was a really powerful tool moving forward. You know, in, um, in Exodus, we see when Moses and Aaron came in, um, those sorcerers and magicians, they did have power. They did have magic. They were able to turn a staff into a snake. They were able to turn water into blood. They were able to summon frogs. Um, but the interesting thing is they couldn't fix any of those problems. Pharaoh still had to have Moses get rid of the frogs. And, you know, he couldn't sort out that water situation. Um, and so we see that in our community, there is, um, there is witchcraft. Um, remember that, that example I gave of people's child doesn't get, you know, they don't have money to take that child to the hospital if they get sick, and so they pray. And so sometimes... God doesn't answer that prayer, or he is he waits, and people then um, begin to try rely on themselves and to seek another solution. And so we see even people that call themselves Christians are also using witchcraft. And so people use witchcraft for every solution you can think of, for um, health, for to have your husband be faithful, for prosperity, uh, for success. Um, and it's a huge stronghold in our community and with something that we have really been um, trying to, to reach people um, and to teach them about and to show them the love of Jesus and his power and his, um, they're afraid of witchcraft. Um, even like pastors are really fearful, but to teach them, you know, he's, he's strong. He's the strong man in the house. If you have Jesus, no smaller spirit can attack you. And, um, one, one challenge is, as we've been working with agricultural farmers, all of the people we work with are sustenance farmers. So they go out with a hoe, and they dig, and um, they work super hard for very little money, um, but it's how they sustain themselves. And so we've been trying to teach them improved agricultural techniques. And we've noticed that um, we're in a beautiful green area, but there is no wildlife. Um, and that is because any wild animal, the moment that it's seen, it's killed and the body parts are used for witchcraft or it's sold to a witch doctor who then uses the body parts for witchcraft. And obviously, I mean, we still have sporadic Ebola cases. Um, it spreads disease. I mean, they, I mean you, they eat chimpanzees, you know, like 
and use their hands and things for witchcraft. That's not a good solution, and it restricts people from going to the doctor and getting real medicine. And so we have been working to try and teach people to come to Jesus and to give up those totems and those pieces of um, body parts. And um, we have had many people, 113 men and women, give up hunting equipment and wildlife body parts. Even spears are really darkly connected to witchcraft. They put covenants over them um, to connect them to their ancestors and the dead so that they can commune with them for success in hunting. And so um, our first meeting, we had three men give up hunt those hunting things in the body parts. And then our next meeting, we had another 10. And then our third meeting, 100 men and a few women came to give up these um, animal body parts. We had like three tables just like heaped. Um, elephants' teeth, horns, hides, everything. And at that meeting, of course, we always, the gospel is the center of everything we do. 35 men accepted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior that day. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, as we see here, you know, yeah, Satan has some powers and magic, but he's come to lie, kill, and destroy. So he can give these solutions, but they end up ensnaring people, and they realize that they're in darkness. And so as people gave up those, those items, I remember at the beginning of that meeting, we asked them, how many of you here have prospered from using witchcraft? And not one person could raise their hand. Um, so people just realize they need Jesus, and it's been exciting to see God powerfully at work in that community. Um, even um, in the local churches, we came in and saw that people love Jesus, um, and pastors are trying their best, but they don't have knowledge. They never were able to finish elementary school or go to Bible school. Many of them are illiterate. Illiterate. Few of them have their own Bible. So there was a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the scriptures um, that was really hurting the community, like mixing a little bit of witchcraft at church or paying, making people pay to be baptized or saying all kinds of things like women wearing makeup or jeans will go to hell. Um, and so um, through Desert Springs, we've been able to um, train our pastors. We've been putting them through an adapted seminary course so that they can better understand the scriptures and how to lead a healthy church. Well, I know that um, that I, I just love hearing how God's been at work in and through you and the ministry of a perfect injustice. I know that for many of us, we want to hear more. So, uh, actually, after this service, we're gonna Abby's gonna be over uh, in our student center, uh, and we're just gonna have some lunch uh, together, and then she'll do some uh, just uh, more presentation on the ministry that she's doing uh, there in Uganda. We'll have some Q and A, and also uh, we're planning on sending a team from Desert Springs to go and uh, help serve alongside you guys next summer. So if you all are interested in knowing more about what that trip would look like, uh, we'd love to have you join us. Again, we'll be over in the Student Center at about 11 o'clock uh, with Abby. So come and learn more or uh, learn more about that trip and how you might want to be a part of that. Uh, can we just say thank you to Abby? Thank you so much. So we see that... God is always at work, working about his redemptive purposes, even though oftentimes it's hidden to us, or at least it seems hidden to us. And so uh, my encouragement to you, uh, if you're in that space today, uh, wondering, is God at work? Where can I look to? Where can I turn to to see God at work? Uh, we see in Scripture that the most vibrant display of God's redemptive power is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that all Scripture actually points towards that end. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it's our common practice as a church family to take communion. It's something that Jesus uh, taught us to do. Uh, he took it before he was crucified and risen uh, as, a, as an act of remembrance. And we're going to do that here in just a moment as we conclude our time together. It's an act of remembrance, an act of worship, an act of seeing uh, God's redemptive power at work. But you might even want to notice that we're thinking about a crucifixion. How could God be at work in crucifixion? And we see that he is at work through the resurrection. And so we take communion remembering Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. For even though it doesn't seem like God is at work, he is always working powerfully to bring about his redemptive purposes. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take a moment to reflect. And then if you'd like to take communion today, uh, I'll lead us in the taking of communion uh, as we continue to worship together. And so let me pray for us. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, in this act of communion, we recognize that we are called to live according to the new covenant in Christ. And as citizens of your kingdom, Jesus, we want to practice your values on earth as it is in heaven. And as we prepare our hearts, we recognize, Lord, that we often fail in this regard. And so, Lord, we pray and we confess that we have not always lived according to your kingdom. We have often propagated injustice and evil. We have often fostered disunity, practicing favoritism, elevating our own concerns and preferences over others. Moreover, Lord, we have often failed to show hospitality, love, and grace. We have often not lived the fruit of your spirit, and so we confess this before you now. And we repent. We turn from these sins and turn back to you, Jesus, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and we ask that your spirit would continue to shape us in your image. As we take of communion today, Lord, we proclaim your finished work on the cross, your death, and your resurrection. And we cling to you knowing that you are the one who brings salvation, forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation, and that in and through you all things will one day be restored. We pray this, Jesus, knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring them about. the elements many uh, in the back of seat in front of you and if you don't have them available to you they are available also on the tables in the back if you would please uh, prepare the bread and the juice on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples he said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me would you take and eat
In a similar way, he took of the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, in this act of remembrance, turn our hearts towards you. We know that you are at work in our lives, in our community. Lord, we see you at work even around the world in our brothers and sisters in Uganda. And in this moment, Lord, we give you thanks for your provision, your power, and your redemptive work. Would you, by the power of your spirit, continue to shape us as a people, as a church family, more and more into your image, resting in this redemptive truth and trusting in your power alone. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name.